welcome to episode 67 of The Climate Champions. Check out past episodes on theclimatechampions.com. I'm Lee Crevat, and each week I publish a new episode with a new climate champion as my guest. If you or someone you know is a climate champion, please let me know at www.crevatenergyinnovations.com. This week, my featured guest is Ron Pernick, founder and managing director of CleanEdge, a cleantech research firm founded in 2000 that offers a suite of stock indexes, benchmarking reports, and events, all focused on the transition to a clean energy, low carbon economy. He produces GridConnect, a multi-stakeholder event focused on building a modern 21st century grid, and has authored multiple cleantech publications and industry reports, including two books, The Cleantech Revolution and Cleantech Nation. Ron co-authored his first report, Cleantech Profits and Potential, to identify the business and financial opportunities of cleantech technology back in 2001, definitely ahead of his time, and has since helped to popularize the term cleantech and advance the sector. He's taught MBA-level courses at Portland State University and New College, and is a regular speaker at industry events. Welcome to The Climate Champions. I'm Lee Crevat, and my guest this week is Ron Pernick. He's the co-founder and managing director at CleanEdge, and he has also written numerous books on clean tech. Ron, welcome to The Climate Champions. Well, thanks for having me, Lee. I'm very excited to talk to you, and I know that you look at it more from a financial perspective and a clean tech perspective than really a climate change perspective, but I am interested in your motivating moment when you started thinking that you wanted to get engaged in this topic. Yeah, that's a great starting point, and it goes back quite a few years. I was born in 1963. I grew up in the suburbs of Detroit. I was very lucky to spend the summers in Algonquin Park in northern Ontario. And I went to a camp there called Camp Tamaqua. And from the age of seven till about the age of nine, I was able to drink the water straight out of the lake. I remember we'd go paddling. I'd take my cup, I'd put it into the water and drink it straight out of the lake. And then uh, about the age of nine or 10, we were told we could no longer drink the water. And that was a defining moment for me. One, because Algonquin Park was so beautiful and so inspirational in terms of just being in nature at a very young age, and then really impactful because of the fact that this human creation of acid rain was impacting nature. And that really struck me as a young child and stayed with me till I was a young adult and now into adulthood. Can you talk about why climate change mitigation is personal to you? And I would love it if you could talk about the impact on your children since you talked about the impact on you. Well, obviously, any of us who live in this world today, you know, there was sort of an innocence to my nine-year-old self and acid rain because we didn't understand at that time that humans could have such an impact. My kids are growing up in a very different world, and they know that there are significant impacts that humans place on the earth. And that can be seen in climate change. It can be seen in all types of manifestations and perhaps even COVID-19. So I think my kids don't have that same innocence that I might have had, that we all had. 
At the same time, I want my children to have a deep respect for nature. And certainly, we do a lot of camping. They continue uh, now with COVID-19. They won't get to do it this summer. But they have gone to summer camps. They spend a lot of time in nature. You know, we're very lucky. We live in Portland, Oregon. So I'm an hour, hour and a half to either the mountains or the coast. And so they've grown up with a deep appreciation for nature. But yeah, I mean... I'm going to let my children make decisions about how they want to work in the world and how they want to have impact. But certainly there's a deep appreciation for nature and the impacts that we're placing on it. Are there other personal drivers for you? I think there are a number of drivers, but a big one for me. So I've had a number of defining impacts from my past. I mentioned Camp Tamaqua and being in Algonquin Park in Northern Ontario. The other one was when I first opened the Whole Earth Catalog. And I think all of us can kind of remember those that day if it happened to you. And so I was probably in high school, just getting ready to go to college and don't remember who gave me a copy of the Whole Earth Catalog, how I came upon it, but there it was. And I spent hours and hours and hours with it. And I remember just the same way it impacted Stuart Brand, but the view of Earth from space. And so I think that that was another defining moment for me feeling how small I was and yet how large I was at the same time. I really got into the whole earth catalog. Years later, I got to work for the well. I don't know if you remember the well. Uh, It was the first online bulletin board and it was the whole earth electronic link. It was where it was sort of birthed out of the whole earth catalog and continue to have a big impact on me throughout my life to this date. You mentioned COVID-19. How has the pandemic impacted your perspective of climate change and clean tech? That's a great question. First of all, let me just give you a background on COVID-19. It hit us rather personally very quickly. So we were supposed to take a family trip to Japan. I used to live in Japan and we were going to go to Japan for the first time with the family, all four of us. And that was going to be during spring break. I was watching COVID-19 very early on because of that. We had to cancel our trip to Japan. The flights got canceled anyway, so we would never have been going. That realization for my kids, again, bringing them in was quite phenomenal just to see this spreading. We then thought we might go visit friends in San Francisco. That got canceled. And then we were just going to like try to save this trip and go to the coast. And we weren't allowed to do that. So we sort of felt COVID-19 very strongly. And we all experienced that, right? And so my first feeling about COVID-19 was, wow, this is something we've never experienced before, this huge global pandemic, and that it was moving very rapidly. So in terms of climate, that's very different because the pandemic was rapid. And climate change moves at decades, centuries, not necessarily in months. But What I saw was this sort of connection between that both of these issues, COVID-19 and climate, are part of natural processes that need our deep respect and that really take long-term planning and rootedness in science to address both of those issues. So that was the first thing that sort of came to my mind was sort of what are the similarities between COVID-19 and the pandemic and climate change? The next thing I wanted to ask, as oil prices were cratering, there was an oversupply, Russia and Saudi Arabia were going at it, there was a significant drop in demand for oil. And I was wondering, well, how is this going to impact the clean energy transition or the energy transition? 
And I'm sitting here today, let's talk again in six months or a year. <laughs> but my sense now is that this is going to expedite or speed up the energy transition. I think that it's going to be very difficult for financial institutions, for large corporates to be behind oil in any way. We're already seeing that. Since COVID-19, more banks have joined the no coal funding movement. You've seen more corporations join the getting to 100%. The University of California just pulled out 100% as well. Yeah, there's a lot of that, and I'm seeing more in the aftermath. It was already happening. If you look at the RE100 campaign, and we've worked closely with Amy Davidson and that crew at the Climate Group, but they had gone from, I think, just two years ago, a couple dozen, to now today, more than 230 companies that have committed. So we've seen more of that movement even since COVID-19, especially, again, as I said, on the financial side of the equation. So what I'm seeing is that oil, coal, even natural gas to some extent, don't look like great investment opportunities, whereas low cost, very competitive solar wind, increasingly with energy storage, look like a very smart move and there's no fuel cost. So again, we'll see how this plays out. Clean energy has not gone unscathed. Of course, it's been impacted. The entire economy has been hit. Jobs are being lost. But the trend line seemed to show that this could actually speed up the transition, not slow it down. Can you talk more about Clean Edge and what you do at Clean Edge? Sure. I started Clean Edge now 20 years ago in 2000. We've done three major things, although we have done many other activities as well. But the three main areas of activity have been convening, indexing, and reporting. And so on the convening side, for about eight years, we put on the Clean Tech Investor Summit. It was held uh, every February in Palm Springs, focused on clean tech innovation. Now for the last three and going on our fourth year, as you know, We've co-convened GridConnect, which is focused on grid modernization across business and policymakers, and it's held in D.C. So it's a little bit different. We moved from February in Palm Springs to December in D.C., but in a lot of ways, that shows the transition that's occurred. It went from Silicon Valley, pie in the sky, but becoming reality, birthing something to something mainstream and needing the attention of policymakers. Last year, I got to interview Miguel Romero from SDG&E live at that conference at Grid Connects. But this year, I think it's going to go online. We are. We're going to go digital this year. That wasn't an easy decision to make. However, looking at the likelihood for a second or third wave of COVID-19 and not having good therapeutics, contract tracing and testing, and of course, a vaccine, it seems prudent to go online. And, and our sponsors felt that way. So we'll be online this year, probably for about a week long. We're putting all the plans together right now. But we actually think we'll be able to expand our reach and have more speakers. Uh, although, as you know, we, we've gotten some great speakers and really high level attendees, but really be able to expand and reach more state energy offices and regulators who might not have the budgets to come. So that's one, just to go back. So convening, reporting, if you go on our website at cleanedge.com, you can see historically all the reports, dozens of reports that we put out over the years. We worked with the city of San Francisco and helped them put together their first clean tech plan more than a decade ago, quite a, probably more than 15 years ago. That's online. 
We help Massachusetts and Oregon and Hawaii do the same. Those are all online. We tracked all 50 states and the top 50 metro regions and put out reports on how the different states and metro regions competed against each other towards clean tech leadership. So a lot of different reporting. And in that same bucket, I would put the two books we wrote. First, The Clean Tech Revolution that came out 13 years ago, and then five years or so after that, Clean Tech Nation. So the reporting side of our business. And then the part of the business where I spend my most time now is indexing. And I mentioned a little bit about state and metro tracking. Well, about 15 years ago, I had gotten a Yale MBA student to work with me to create a stock index. I was getting ready to sign a partnership with another group when I got a call from NASDAQ. And NASDAQ was like, oh, Ron, have you ever thought about doing a clean energy index? I said, well, that's interesting. I have one. I've created one. I said, I'm three days away from signing a deal with someone else. They said, well, would you be interested in talking about this? Are you open? I said, well, can we move quickly? And they said, yeah, we can move quickly. So I reached out to my initial partner, who I had been pushing to do the stock indexes. And they're like, no, look, if you can do it with NASDAQ, go ahead. And so I said, okay, give me a month. Let me see what I can do. Went back, negotiated with NASDAQ, and we launched the NASDAQ Clean Edge Green Energy Index a few months later. And subsequent to that, we launched a number of other indices, including, and I think you'll appreciate this, a global smart grid and grid infrastructure index. And a couple of years ago, I took on the management of two other indices that were already owned by NASDAQ when they acquired ISE. One is a US-listed water stock index, and the other is a global wind energy index. And so the four indexes all have uh, financial products based on them through First Trust. So they're all investable ETFs with about $750 million in assets under management in the tracking funds of the four indexes. Cool. So that's where I spend a lot of my time now. And we also have a long short index with a group called FFI. FFI is Fossil Free Indexes. They're a really interesting group. They create the exclusionary lists for a lot of ESG and other funds that are looking to exclude oil and gas players. So they have the definitive list of exclusionary players. We joined forces to do a long short. They use my universe for the long. They use their universe for the shorts. And that's a very interesting index or thematic offering as well, which you can see about on our website. And looking always at other opportunities for one thing I'm very interested right now is sustainable or resilient infrastructure. And so looking at ways to create more income-oriented indexing that would capture things like green bonds, yield co's, REITs, and maybe in the future, MLPs. So is that something we have to look forward to? That's something I'm working on. So we'll continue to see how that plays out. Excellent. Excellent. Can you talk about your journey to get where you are today? Yeah. You know, I'm going to talk career now rather than Algonquin Park and the Whole Earth Catalog. Absolutely. Yes. Early inspirational touch points. So I wanted to work in clean energy early on. I, I went to Michigan State University, spent my junior year abroad studying and living in Japan. And at the time that I chose my major, I ended up picking telecom and Asian studies. And I'll talk about that in a second. But I was very interested in clean energy. At the time, it was actually called appropriate technologies or alternative energy. I took up an appropriate technology course or two in university. But I realized at the time that it was still very early. And so I was prudent. 
my dad didn't understand at the time. I think he said, well, what, what are your majors again, Ron? And I said, oh, telecommunications and Asian studies. And he's like, well, what are you going to do with that? <laughs> and of course, it was great because it was 1985 when I graduated. And I joined Electronic Data Systems, EDS. Ross Perot and GM had just merged. So I got to experience that merging of very different cultures. And I was involved in telecom in Asia, which was interesting. Went on a number of trade missions to Japan, including six weeks after joining the firm. So telecom to me is very similar in a lot of ways to what we're seeing in the restructuring of our energy sectors today. It was highly, highly regulated. It was being deregulated. The market was opening up to competition. We were seeing a lot of innovation in telecom because of advancements in chips and the advent of computers. And so it was a very, and we're sort of moving to the digital realm, right? Around the time that I was jumping into this, a bit later, of course, but early glimmers of that. And my first work was sort of involved in teleconferencing systems, both broadband and over POTS, over landline. So that was fun for me. And the thing that held that together, I was sort of involved in technology innovation early on, almost sort of futurist-oriented type work, right? Getting engineers together in different countries to look at a blueprint together and mark it up. That was pretty advanced back in 85, 86, Very advanced back then. Yeah. And so then I moved back to Japan after that, and I worked for Sharp Electronics. And again, so it was Asia, Japan, and telecom. Now, this is interesting. You probably know this, but Sharp was the leader at that point in time in the late 80s in solar PV manufacturing. Wasn't a lot, but they were the leaders. (laughs) And so I was writing about that as well. I did their in-house newsletter. I've mostly come from the communications and project management side of the equation. And so I was writing the in-house newsletter for Sharp. And where is Sharp with PV now? Oh, Sharp is a fascinating company. They basically invented the microwave. They invented the electronic organizer. It was called the Wizard back then. They invented the LCD. And they were at the forefront of PV. They didn't invent it. They've basically ceded market control to all of those other sectors. They still are active in LCDs, but go look at your microwave. It's most likely not a Sharp anymore. You probably don't even remember that Sharp invented the electronic organizer. (laughs) So they're a great innovative company at the time, at least they were. And unfortunately, they don't always hold on to market share. I tried to help them in the early 2000s with their solar industry in the U.S. But we should move on from Sharp. I left Japan and I came back to the United States and I moved to San Francisco. And again, you can imagine moving to San Francisco in 1990. Interesting time. Internet hasn't occurred yet, but it's still a tech mecca in many ways and a computer mecca, obviously, with Apple and others. And so I took about six months off and worked for, do you you remember the Earth Island Journal and Earth Island Institute, David Brower's group? So I volunteered for them and I, you know, I'd saved up money in Japan. So I was fine. I rented an apartment with a roommate or a house and I helped out at Earth Island. And again, really interested in clean energy, thought maybe I'd make a go of it. But this 1990, there's not a lot happening. It's a very different era at this point still. And so I applied for a PR position at a tech firm and got the job. And when I joined, I said, look, I really want to explore clean energy. And they said, we totally support that. They were big whole earth catalog folks. They actually had the well as an account later on, which I led up. 
And they said, absolutely, let's do this. And so I tried to build that practice with them, but this little thing called the internet got in the way. And in 1992 uh, or 91, I was working on the Well account, which I said was the first online bulletin board. And then we ran into a company out in Sebastopol, California. You'll probably know these Unix publishers. So it was Internet in a Box and Global Network Navigator. And it was part of Tim O'Reilly's empire. Yeah. It, was, it wasn't much yet, but we got there and they showed us the Internet. And I was on the Internet and just going, whoa, we were looking at, I think IMDB actually was already up at the time. They were one of the first online websites. And we went and looked at a paleontology site and a whole bunch of educational stuff and some nonprofit stuff. While you were doing that, I was checking out Satchel Sports. That was my first site that I used a lot. Oh, there you go. Yeah. So early, early days, right? And so we got Internet Box as a client and took them live and, and launched them. Same with Global Network Navigator, which predated Hotwired. It was really the first online magazine that was like a directory as well. And then we launched some other companies like Yahoo and Women's Wire and Quote.com, which was an early stock trading website. And later on, Preview Travel, which later became Travelosity. Preview Travel went public and I actually worked with them for two and a half years. So anyway, kind of did this whole internet thing. That was a major thing. And again, against this backdrop, I'm thinking about clean energy. So now we'll get to this. Sorry, it took a while. Thinking about clean energy this whole time, really, I'm really interested. I met Amory Lovins. I went out to Rocky Mountain Institute. I did some classes at Esalen on clean energy with Amory and was really interested, but didn't know when the timing would be right. By 1997, 98, I had left Preview Travel. I'd left the earlier PR firm and I'd started my own consultancy. And by 99, I looked at my roster and 80% of my clients I was helping, it was called Web Strategies. I was helping nonprofits, foundations, and companies transition to the web and use the web effectively and promote their web offerings. And I looked at my client list and over 80% were all clean energy related. Global Environment Technology Fund, the project that was backed by Ted Turner called Verde Media. And I said, okay, I understand now something's changing. And so I got on a flight and went to Geneva to a World Bank UN conference on clean technology and clean energy. And I left the conference and I typed up the business plan for Clean Edge on the way back. Very nice. As soon as I got back, yeah, I contacted Joel McCower, who became my business partner and co-founder at the time. I've since subsequently bought him out of the company about six, seven years ago. But if you know Joel McCower, he's the founder of GreenBiz and still very active in the space. He's also an author, written a lot of books, inspired me to become an author. And uh, we launched Clean Edge and launched the website. The name got no funding. We did it on our own, bootstrapped it, and worked with some great clients through these 20 years, governmental, non-governmental, corporate, and kind of told you earlier a lot of the activities we're doing. So that was sort of my path to clean energy and clean tech. But, you know, it took patience. You can want to do something, but if you're a pragmatist, sometimes you just got to keep watching to see the signposts and read the tea leaves. And by the time I looked at my roster of clients and realized they were finally all clean, almost all clean energy clients, I realized the timing was right. And, you know, if you think about it, even 2000 was really early 
It's very early. A lot of people weren't thinking about this. You know, now it looks like, of course, mainstream, but not in 2000. Yeah, I wasn't in the game yet in 2000 at all. Yeah, I think in 2000, a lot of people go, it's really interesting. I, I highly recommend you go read our first report, Clean Tech Profits and Potential, and see some of what we outlined and what where we thought it was going and market sizing, which we ended up being quite undercounting the growth the 10 years out. But we, we kind of wanted to set the stage for what was coming. And it's great to see, you know, what happened. And it was good. We worked with a lot of the early venture capital firms like Nth Power. We worked with a lot of the early NGOs that were active in the space like E2. And it, it's, it's really just quite gratifying to see that markets can move not as rapidly as we might all like, but they can move quite aggressively. And we've seen an incredible shift in the economics. You've talked about having patience, but you haven't talked about setbacks and things that happened during your career that maybe made it more difficult for you. Yeah, I might have been blessed in some way. I feel like I always tell young people, especially when we wrote the first book, a lot of people were contacting us. And I've now met a lot of people through the years who tell me the work that they're doing in clean tech, and they, they were inspired by the book. And that's very gratifying. And I feel like throughout my career, and I kind of laid it out for you, there was sort of this natural progression. And they're almost like eight to 10 year periods, right? Where I picked something that was really an exciting emerging area and got to play in it. And you can't really ask for much more in a career, can you? I mean, to be able to have a role in an emerging area, because I'm so interested in innovation and I'm so interested in transition. So I think in a lot of ways, I've been very lucky. And I wouldn't say I've had huge setbacks, but I think there are a couple of times when maybe things weren't so easy. And one of them I can remember very clearly. In 1987, I had left EDS and I had not yet gone to Japan. And I didn't talk about that. There was a six month period in between where I moved to Seattle. And I realized, if you think about it, I was, you know, I was a young boy raised in Michigan and then had traveled to Japan and I was drawn to the West Coast. So that made sense, right? So I went and tried Seattle. But that Seattle in 1987, there wasn't a lot going on. It was mostly an import-export opportunity. So you could work in sort of shipping. You could have been really, really smart and had a big trust fund and bought houses, which would have made you a lot of money. Yeah, that's a good time to invest in real estate in Seattle. Yeah, 1987 in Portland or Seattle would have been really good, right? I didn't have the money. I was young. I just worked two years, you know, didn't saved up a lot and I didn't have a trust fund. So there I was. And then I could have somehow run into Microsoft, but I didn't. I didn't even know about Microsoft really in 1987. It wasn't on my radar. It was on many people's, but not on mine. And so Seattle was a very difficult time for me. What I learned, my mom was always of the mind that it doesn't matter where you are. You just make your home where you are. And my feeling was, no, it matters where you are because different places are very different. And so I gave Seattle about six months. Timing wasn't right. And I left for Japan. And that was one of the best moves I ever made. I got to Japan and it was just amazing. And that was when I ended up working for Sharp and spent another three years. I really learned the language, made a lot of friends, 
I lived in another culture. And I highly encourage any young people, if there are young people listening, I don't know your demographics, but if you can go live abroad in a post-COVID-19 world, I highly recommend it. It's, it's a great experience. So that was a hard period for me. And I questioned what I was going to do, and I didn't know. And Seattle didn't have the answers because, quite frankly, like I explained earlier, telecom, you know, that whole thing happened with EDS. Well, those because GM and EDS merged, right? And there I was in Detroit. I got the job, went to Japan. Sharp was very active, moved to internet or moved to San Francisco and helped in my very small way. Or was that it had an interesting seat near the front of the birth of the internet and then clean tech. And so if you're technology driven, place can matter, increasingly less so now as we all work from our home offices and can do work from anywhere. But certainly when I was younger, we didn't have all that connectivity. Place was pretty important. But yeah, nothing against Seattle, but that was a period in my life where I had to really think. And in my case, I left Seattle and went to Japan and moved on from there. It's interesting that you learned the lesson that location does matter. Location, location, location. But now... With the pandemic, we really don't know the impact now of where you are versus what opportunities you can have. Yeah, it's a good point. And I have to sort of go back on what I said earlier. You have to remember in 1987 or 1990, and even probably in 2000, place really mattered, right? Because epicenters of creativity, innovation, call them incubatory hubs, mattered. So they mattered because we didn't have the tools. But now we're all second nature. You know, my kids, they're digital natives, right? They're 13. They've been online. I mean, we actually kept them away from a lot of devices early on. They're going to actually get their first phones at 13, but they still have iPads and they have their Chromebook for school. They're digital natives, right? And so they're used to just that and being able to connect. And as you said, you know, Grid Connects will be virtual. A lot of conferences are now convening online. So the world has changed. Maybe place isn't as important as it used to be. And uh, in the aftermath of COVID-19, I think we'll regroup. I do believe geographies do have an impact on psyche and what people are talking about and thinking about and doing. But certainly we're not as place dependent as we used to be. You can see tech innovation occurring online in ways that were obviously not possible when I was starting my career. And even though the technology existed before, people weren't as comfortable with video conference technology until the last few months. And now people that I used to just talk to on the phone were using video conferencing and people that I never talked to, I let those relationships lapse. We're starting to talk face to face because we can, and it seems so easy and accepted now. Yeah, it's a huge shift, no doubt. Can you talk about the successes that you are most proud of? Well, I think, and this is not to sound arrogant, I hope in any way, but writing a book is a very, very consumptive process. And so I think I'm most proud of our first book, The Clean Tech Revolution, that really was a distillation of trying to explain where we saw, because remember, I started Clean Edge in 2000, right? We had written lots of reports. We were already convening meetings. Uh, in fact, our first stock index was already out by the time I wrote the first book. But in 2007, we really wanted to explain in a very concrete way the pathways for the future of the grid and for solar and wind and for storage and the electrification of transportation and what was driving that. 
and to do it in a way that was, you know, interesting and captivating and would sell books and would influence people. So I'm definitely proud of that. We were pretty successful. We had about 35,000 copies sold in hardcover and paperback over about a year period. It was translated into seven different languages. And I think that that was a defining moment for me. And then I think today, probably, again, career-wise, not my personal life, probably the stock indexing and the ability to track thematics that capture both the energy transition and sustainable, regenerative, resilient infrastructure across the grid, across water, across energy, transportation as well. So I'm glad that near the end of my career, it's hard for me to say that we were watching this show last night about Alaska from the BBC, where there's a home that this couple, the OCs built, and these other couples are competing to win it. And they're showing people in their mid-50s who are acting like they're ready to retire. And I'm not quite there, but I know I'm near the end of my career in some ways. I'll have another 15 years. I'm already more than 30-some in, right? Or maybe 10 to 15 years. So I'm very glad and excited to continue to have indexing as something that is changing and dynamic and that I think can have an impact. Because I think we need to move dollars, capital, from the old line fossil fuel traditional industries to the emerging transition. And we're seeing that happen. And hopefully the indexes that I'm developing can be a part of that. I think the books and the indexes are fantastic successes. So I think you should be very proud. Not that you need me to think that, but I think you should. Thank you. Can you talk about your vision for the future? Where do you see the world 20, 30, 40 years from now, especially given your idea of shifting from the old energy world to the new? I think that in 20, well, 2000, in 2000, 20 years ago now, we could see the decarbonization trends. And I give a lot of credit to folks like, obviously, Amory Lovins, Dan Riker, Bill Ritter, and a whole slew of other folks who very early on and are still active in the space, who talked about decarbonization, who talked about the trend lines. So we kind of jumped in there and, you know, it was early, early days. And so we had this vision of where things might go. But fast forward to today, there are now three states that get more than 30% of their electricity generated from renewables. You've got 230 companies that are moving towards getting to 100% clean energy. You've got coal declining. I'm sure you saw this in April. The United States, for the first time, generated more electrons from solar, wind, and hydro than it did from coal. That's going to be the same for the entire year from projections from the EIA. So this transition is occurring. Now it's about getting it done at scale. That's where we're at. We're in the scaling up stage. And so it's not to me so much about all the new technologies. I think we'll see incremental improvements. We'll see breakthroughs. But, you know, we have lithium-ion technology. We'll have a million-mile battery soon from Tesla. We've got relatively efficient solar. We've got efficient, larger wind. We can do it both onshore and offshore. We've got storage technologies that also tie into the million-mile battery-type breakthroughs on the lithium-ion side of the equation, and then, of course, flow batteries and some other competing chemistries. So we have the technologies. So now it's about moving policy and moving capital 
And I think uh, we're well on our way. I think it can be discouraging in the United States when you have a leader who dismisses, belittles, maligns clean energy and tries to prop up coal and fossil fuels at all costs. But he's been miserably unsuccessful in that mission. And I don't think he'll see much traction moving forward either. Luckily, we have state leaders at the governorship levels. Uh, we have city leaders and we have national leaders across the globe who see the need for this transition. So you asked me, where are we in 20, 30 years? I think we basically have transitioned to a clean energy economy powered by clean electrons. And we'll see significant electrification across transport, industry, heating and cooking. You talked about retiring soon. I hope you don't. And I hope we're both active in 20 or 30 years. And I would love to read your book about the history of this shift, <laughs> because you are well acquainted with the people that started it, and you understand where we are now and where we're going. It would be a very interesting read. That's a great idea. I'm not thinking about writing any book soon, but I could imagine doing that later. That's interesting. Books are interesting, but nowadays I feel like if we can do it through the convening, right? And, and you maybe hope we have noticed this at Grid Connects. I try to bring all the people together that I would want to interview for the book, really. And so, and to cover those topics. So I think whether it's convening, whether it's indexing, whether it's reports, I'm working on two reports right now on the investment landscape, one for water and one for clean energy and smart grid. So I think in many ways, even though it might not be in a book format, hopefully I'm able to continue to report out on and bring together those voices. Because where I'm at today is I don't feel like it's about me. It's about all the other people. It's never been about me. It's not about us individually, I don't think. These big movements are about collective change. And you know, there's a debate that goes on about individual action versus collective action. And while I really appreciate individual action, it's a lot to ask of folks. So you know, we need to decarbonize our grid so that no individual has to really think about it. So you plug in, you've got clean electrons coming in. Anyway, I digress a bit. So I also think it's about others. That's why I have the podcast to bring up to people in general so they understand what's going on. But I do think you're one of the people moving society forward. That's why we're talking. Yeah, well, I appreciate that. And obviously you are too and, and all your other guests. Can you talk about the change that the pandemic has brought to your vision of where we're going with regards to climate change and renewable energy? Just to be completely honest, I vacillate. I tend to be a pragmatic optimist. I am optimistic by nature. The pragmatism just sort of balances my optimism, right? It just sort of keeps it not overly optimistic, but just sort of nicely optimistic. And that's sort of where I've been historically. With the global pandemic and sort of watching the foibles of humanity not always getting it right because it's sort of the fog of war, isn't it? We don't know everything. It's moving fast. It makes me, on some days, you know, I'm optimistic about the Great Reset. And on other days, I'm very pessimistic that this is really difficult, daunting, and we all need to be on the same page that science matters. And when we're not, that really seems disconcerting and difficult for me. And so I, go, I vacillate between optimism and pessimism. So the pandemic clearly is impacting that sort of my feelings about optimism and pessimism. I think, though, in another way, on my optimistic days or my optimistic moments or even my just pragmatic moments, 
I see this as a pretty significant disruption that has the ability to have a positive impact potentially. And so what I mean by that is, I think if you ask most people even a year ago, what do you think about healthcare for all? I was supportive of healthcare for all, but I was even uncertain about what that looked like. Now I'm just pretty positive that we need healthcare for all. You know, it's like you can't go through a pandemic and not cover everybody. We can't be a country that does that. And right now we're one of the few countries that doesn't have healthcare for all. So I feel like the pandemic in some ways may open our eyes to the need for the transition. And whether that be how we have healthcare in our society or how we transition to clean energy, that there can be a moment where it impacts us. But again, I think we need to see where we are six months to a year from now. Have we reached herd immunity? Do we have a vaccine? Does it lessen in its impact somehow? Does it worsen? So I think it's very difficult for me to know, I think for any of us to have a crystal ball. And so I won't pontificate on how it will play out. But my hope is, like I'm seeing right now on the stuff that I track, and you as well, clean energy, the grid, transportation, that I actually think it will most likely speed up. The other thing I would say, and and this is really important in terms of the pandemic, we right now are just treading water. So all of the stimulus we've seen to date is just about treading water. None of it is like a stimulus package that's based on infrastructure build out, right? When we get to the other side of just treading water and making sure we don't fall through some deep crevice, and now we're going to actually think about, well, how do we build resiliency into our systems, then the conversation is going to move to, and whether it's a state level or the federal level, having groups of people out there doing deep efficiency, doing clean energy installations, setting up medical contact tracing, all the different things that we need right now. And so I'm, I'm interested to see where we end up post the 2020 election, who we have in office, and what type of stimulus we see that's about the infrastructure build out that we need. And so that will be interesting. I can tell you right now that the IEA, a decade ago, the IEA was not a huge fan or proponent of clean energy. They were kind of more in the pockets of oil and gas. Nothing against the IEA, but that, that was my sense. Now they're pretty clear that they've made it very clear that the future of stimulus build out should be on low carbon and zero carbon technologies. That's a huge shift. And I think we'll see that outside of the U.S. certainly, and certainly in California and New York and other states that are very aggressive. And you remember, you know, California is the fifth largest economy in the world in its own right. So that's going to be interesting to watch. And and hopefully the U.S. will join at the federal level. One of the things that gives me a little bit more hope because of the pandemic that you touched on is that the government, our government and other governments, were able to turn on the tap to trillions of dollars. And while that is going to put us behind the hate ball economically, it also shows that when we recognize we have an issue, we can really turn on a dime and make an impact. Exactly. That's sort of what I was saying earlier, and I agree. It's it's moving very rapidly, and change can happen maybe more rapidly because of it. Do you have any questions for me? No, I just appreciate the opportunity to have done this. All right. Well, if you don't have anything else, then I'm going to wrap this up and I'm going to wrap it up with a wrap. 
your kids, they have to have nature imprints, but with regards to climate change, there's no innocence. The whole earth catalog, it made you care about this place. You saw the view of earth all the way from space. Ron, it was great to talk to you about drinking acid rain at Cantamaqua. COVID-19 affected your four-person clan. You had to cancel your trip to Japan. Universities are getting out of oil. At least one did. 230-plus companies, part of the RE100. You co-founded the conference Grid Connect and also the Clean Tech Index. You surprised your dad at Michigan University by studying telecom and Asian studies instead of alternative energy. You moved on quick. You didn't want to harp about the ups and downs of Sharp. You should be proud. You're a big part of the solution. You wrote the clean tech revolution. <laughs> oh, that's great. I love it. That is really, really cool. It was very exciting to hear about the inspiration Ron has provided to young people. It shows the true power of clearly communicating a message. It's also powerful to understand the value of patience. Hey, climate change mitigation is urgent, so go, go, go. But if you take risks and gather new varied experiences throughout your life, you'll be in a more powerful place. And while you may struggle to see how you can make a difference now, if you're patient and you stay aware of the world around you, you'll have opportunities to apply the knowledge you're gaining, make a difference, and do great things. For Ron, his challenges in Seattle, his international experiences in Japan, his willingness to take on risk and engage with the internet in its infancy have all enabled his success. He kept his eye on the clean tech ball, gathered the ingredients, and when he saw the opportunity, he put it all together. If you have comments or questions about the podcast, visit my website at www.crevatenergyinnovations.com and drop me an email. I would love to hear from you. And if you're enjoying the Climate Champions podcast series, please subscribe, rate it five stars if you're an Apple user, and tell your climate-concerned friends about it. Ron said he convenes, indexes, and reports. But what all these have in common is that they communicate in a way that people can understand and in a way that means something to them. Clearly communicating in an impactful way is critical to mitigate climate change.